Our sermon text this morning can be found in the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24. If you uh, grabbed one of the Bibles that we have as you came into the uh, gymnasium here, you can find that on page 830. Also, if you wish to follow along, it will be displayed on the big screen behind me. And while you're turning to Matthew 24, I'll just take a moment to explain uh, what this flower is I'm wearing. A number of people have come up and asked me what this is and what it means. It's actually, we call it a poppy. And where I'm from, where I grew up in Canada, it's actually a tradition that we wear to remember those who died and shed their blood uh, in the war uh, so that we can enjoy freedom and peace. And, uh, and that was on display here with public baptisms and worship and, and right now publicly reading the word of God in peace. So let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 24. We'll start at verse 42. The Lord Jesus speaking here. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, It begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's take just a moment to pray together before we look into God's word. Father in heaven, we are conscious that we sit and stand in your presence with your word open before us. What an awesome privilege that is. What an awesome responsibility it is. And we pray that in these moments you would come and help us. Help this frail servant to speak. Help all of us to hear. And may the Holy Spirit do his gracious work in all of us in sending your word home to the depths of our hearts to do all that is needed. And we are needy. And you are a gracious giver. So will you come and meet us at the point of our need and give us grace, we pray. For your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever had to wait for something for a long time? Something you really, really, really looked forward to, something that was really special, 
so that you could hardly stand it until it came. You've all been in that place, right? Kids, you can't wait till tomorrow, especially if a tomorrow is Saturday, right? You've done everything you know to do to get ready for whatever that event is. You've planned and prepared and have gotten everything ready, and then you wait. It's on your mind, and you think about it, and it's never far from your thoughts. And it's on your mind when you go to bed, and it's on your mind when you wake up in the morning, and you can hardly believe it when the day finally comes. Maybe it was your first real date. Back in the day, I'm revealing my age, okay? Maybe it was your first real date back in the day, and you were as nervous as a cat. You checked your hair a dozen times in the mirror. You laugh. You did it. You made sure your clothes were just right. You checked your nails and your breath over and over. And then you finally went to pick her up. Because you were the guy looking in the mirror. Well, so was she. But you you could hardly wait for that moment to come. And, and it was on your mind over and over and over again. Or maybe it was your wedding day. You know what I was afraid of about our wedding day? I was afraid the Lord would come back first and I wouldn't get to marry her. <laughs> that was 44 plus years ago. And I, st- and I remember it. And so do you. And you remember how you got ready and you remember the anticipation and you remember the delight when the day finally came. And you saw her coming down the aisle. And she saw you. And it's beautiful. Or maybe it's your 16th birthday. Yes, I get to drive. I get a car. You've waited for that, haven't you? Or maybe it was that special vacation you planned in great detail. It was your fir- and, and, and you, you've never been there before and you, you got everything all ready to go and the day came and you went and it was lovely. Or maybe it was your first phone. I get a phone! Your eight-year-old cries. <sighs> Fill in whatever it was that you anticipated. You could hardly wait for that moment to come. We've all had that experience of anticipating something for which we've carefully prepared and waited And we wanted to be ready. What Jesus details for us in Matthew 25 is all about being ready. But it's for something infinitely greater than a date or a vacation or even a wedding, a trip, a birthday or a phone. It's all about being ready for his return at the end of this age. The disciples of Jesus asked him when he said something about this magnificent temple in Jerusalem that was about to be destroyed. When is that going to happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Matthew 24 and 25 are Jesus' answer to that question. And it's an answer that comes just three days before Jesus was crucified. 
So you know that Jesus picked his words very carefully. It was the last thing, some of the last things he would ever say to his disciples. And while there's a measure of mystery to his answer, it is plain enough that our being ready for his return is central. That is crystal clear from the end of of chapter 24, which John read for us this morning. Verse 44 said, for this reason, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. You must be ready. And Jesus chases that idea of readiness all through Matthew chapter 25, which is our concern this morning. To the Western mind of the 21st 21st century, those words about the return of Jesus at the end of the age and being prepared and being ready, those words probably sound very strange because they presuppose the reality of the supernatural and that there is an age to come. That there is more to life than this present earthly existence. And that is hard for 21st century Western minds to grasp. That there is supernatural. And that this life is not all there is. In fact, it is the tiniest little minuscule part of all that is and is to come. And the point is not that the Bible is full of old out-of-fashion ideas that don't pass muster to our exceedingly great intellect today. No, the point is that today's thinking has long since departed from the unchanging truth of the Word of God. And the Bible is not out of step. We are. And our society is and our culture is. And the briefest of glances, and I mean that, The briefest of glances at what is going on in our own culture confirms that we are much the poorer for having departed from the truth of God's Word. That's not rocket science. It's as plain as the nose on your face. So the notion that there is an age to come and that the return of of Christ in power and glory will bring about that transition from this age to the one that is to come is not some old, stodgy, worn-out relic from a bygone era. It's true, it's relevant, and we desperately need to hear that message that Jesus is coming back and that this age is going to end. And there's an age to come that will be full of glory or full of torment for everybody who has ever lived. So this morning we come to Matthew 25 which holds for us three major sections. There's the parable of the ten virgins. There's the parable of the talents. And finally, the account of the great day of judgment when the nations will be gathered before Jesus and separated as the sheeps, as the sheep from the goats. And all three of these sections are about basically the same thing, being ready for the return of Christ. We need to be thinking about it and getting ready for that day. Now, obviously... In the time we have, we got 46 verses here. We're not going to cover them all in any kind of detail. So this is going to be a a flyover. This is going to be a flyby. We'll try to hit the high points. So if there are things here that you don't understand, boys and girls, if there are things here in this that don't make sense to you, they probably don't make sense to your mom and dad either. But one day you'll understand. So we're just going to zip through Matthew 25. And here's how we'll break it down. The parable of the ten virgins 
tells us to be ready. The parable of the talents tells us how to be ready. And the, and the lesson of the sheep and goats tells us why we need to be ready. All right, you got it? If you're under 12, 12 and under, raise your hand. Come on. 12 and under, raise your hand. Okay, here it is. You guys give it back to your mom and dad around the lunch table today, okay? Be ready, how to be ready, and why we need to be ready. You got it? What's the first one? Be ready. Second one? Good. How to be ready. The third one? Why we need to be ready. Okay, now if the the 12 and under crowd can get that, so can the rest of you. Okay, blow the rest off this thing. And here it is. Be ready, how to be ready, and why we need to be ready. And each section is put together basically the same way. We have the basic details of the story, and then the story ends with both the reward and a penalty. The reward is glorious, and the penalty is utterly devastating. All right, let's look at each one of these in order. Matthew 25, the first 13 verses, and I'm going to take the time to read these so you can follow. Uh, If you like, I'm reading from the New American Standard, Matthew 25, 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, the details here are pretty simple. This is a wedding party. We don't understand everything about how wedding parties operated back then, but this is a wedding party. No doubt preparations have been made, and they've been going on for some time, and things are about to reach the peak when the bridegroom appears, but he seems to have been delayed, and they don't know exactly when he's coming. But the escort for the bridegroom is a mixed group. Five of them are wise, and five are foolish. The wise anticipating his coming are prepared. They've thought about it. They've... They've made all the preparations for when he comes. And they and the point is they don't know when he's coming. <clears throat> so they think, okay, he's not here now. He could be here then. He could be here later. It could be later. What do we need to do? So they made preparations and they turned their lamps and they got extra oil for their lamps. But the five foolish are not thinking. They're not ready. They want to be part of the party. They want to have a good time. But they're, but they're not looking out to see, here's, here's how things may develop and here's what we need in order to be ready at that point. So they're just, they're just lollygagging and tagging along. 
And they got their lamps, but no oil. How how foolish is that? And there are some commentators who believe that there there was absolutely no oil. There wasn't even oil in their lamp, let alone an extra flask of oil. It says they had no oil. How foolish. So they didn't prepare. They weren't ready. So the five wise virgins make it into the wedding feast. When the bridegroom comes, they rise, they trim their lamps, and off they go. And the five foolish trim their lamps. And what little oil may have been left in that wick has long since dried out. And the wick sputters and goes out. And give us some of your oil. And they say, no, there won't be enough for us all. And they run off to try to find some oil. They come back. The door has already been shut. The five wise virgins are rewarded with admission to the feast and the enjoyment of the presence of the bridegroom. And the five foolish pay the penalty of being turned away. They lose the privilege of the bridegroom's presence and the enjoyment of the wedding feast. The point Jesus is making is about way more than weddings. It's about his return Verse 13, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour of what? Of when Jesus is going to come back. Preparedness is essential, for the time is coming when getting ready will no longer be possible and the door will be shut. Delay is not an option. Failure to prepare results in exclusion. Will you feel the weight of that? When Jesus returns, it's over. There'll be no time to go get oil. There'll be no time to say, oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. I forgot you were coming. It's going to be too late. And the door will be shut. And some of you sitting right here this morning are not ready for Jesus to come back. You're not ready to die. And one of those things is going to happen first. Either you're going to die or Jesus is coming back. No question. And you're not ready for either one. You may think you can put it off. How did that work for the five foolish virgins? How did that work? They put off preparing. They didn't think ahead. They didn't plan ahead. They didn't realize. How did that work for them? It did not work. The door was shut. And while what I'm going to say right now is not directly in this text or in this chapter of Matthew, it is the unmistakable teaching of all of Scripture, and it's the foundation of a life of the stewardship and good works we'll see later in this chapter, that no one has ever entered the kingdom of heaven on their own merit. Ever. That has never been an option for gaining entrance into the presence of Jesus, that you do it on your own steam. What does the Bible say? Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's how you make it. That's the groundwork preparation that needs to be made. If you're not going to be shut out at the end of the age when Jesus comes back. Or should you die and go to see him, go to meet him. The beginning of all true preparation for the return of Jesus is this. You've got to be trusting in him and him alone for your acceptance with God. And without this, you'll never be ready to meet 
Jesus. And some of you sitting here are not ready to meet Jesus. You are just not. Ah, get ready. I'll have time. It's what the foolish virgins thought. And what happened? The door was shut. And they never got in. They never got in. And the door is going to be shut one day. And if you're not ready, you ain't getting in. The next parable of the talents tells us how to be ready for the return of Christ. If you're trusting in Jesus alone, here's what that life looks like. Here's how to be ready for his return. And please understand this as we make our way through this whole chapter. This this chapter is talking about what a life looks like that has come to trust in Jesus. You don't get in because you've done this, done that, done this, done that. You get in because you're trusting Jesus. But here's what a life looks like that's trusting Jesus, okay? That's all through this passage. So, now Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. For it is just like a man about it, the kingdom of heaven, is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping. And gnashing of teeth. Now let's think about what talents are. In the New Testament, a talent was a unit of weight and then an amount of money. A very large amount of money. Some estimate up to 20 years worth of income. There's a lot of money. This man about to go on a journey was a wealthy 
man. But what often comes to our minds with the word talent is some ability you have. You can sing or dance or draw or paint. You have a talent. But the principle here is not whether you can sing or dance or draw or paint, okay? The principle here is what God gives us that we're to be stewards over. The principle is one of stewardship. These servants were called upon to manage their master's wealth for his benefit. That's what a steward does. And the master entrusted his wealth to these men and said, manage this well and I will return. And they did, two of them, and one of them did not. And he paid the penalty. A steward manages what belongs to another for his benefit. Paul is called a steward of the mysteries of God. We are called stewards of the manifold grace of God. In First Peter, referring to the gifts God has given us to exercise for the good of the body and the glory of God. A steward is required to be trustworthy, which meant that he had to carry out the master's will with regard to the master's goods. That's what a steward had to do. So the talents here in Matthew 25 are those areas of life and responsibility entrusted to us by God to manage well for his glory. That's what the talents are. That's the point we need to take away from this. And we must manage those things well for the glory of God. Certainly it would include spiritual gifts, First Peter 4.10. What gift has God given you in terms of, of spiritual good for the body of Christ? Do you manage it well? Do you improve it? Do you develop it? Do you strengthen it? Or are you sitting on that thing in the ground? What are you doing with what gift God has given you to serve the body of Christ? Are you managing? Are you managing your time? Well, God gave us all the same. 24 7. Are you managing that time well for the glory of God? Or have you buried it in the ground and you're just sitting on it? Those of you who are parents, do you manage your children well by bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Your children don't belong to you. My children don't belong to me. They're a trust from God. I have a stewardship. I have a stewardship over my children. Are you managing that stewardship well for the glory of God? We must manage our resources well. Do you think about managing your money for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom? Do you? This isn't mine. Well, I've actually got something in here. There's a couple of fives and, and two or three ones. I'm in good shape today. But do I manage that well for the glory of God? We must manage our civic responsibilities well. Pastor Ted already stole my thunder on that point. God has called us to be salt and light. And one of the ways we do that is to vote for those causes and principles that honor God and biblical principle in a society that is rotten at its core. If you don't go vote Tuesday, 
You've buried that responsibility in the ground. And your master is not pleased with how you manage your civic responsibility. We've been entrusted with the gospel. Do we manage that well by living it out in front of and giving it to our neighbors and workmates and people we know? Are we managing that resource well? Are we good stewards of the privilege of belonging to the church? Do we support her and love her and help her and serve her? Or do we tiptoe around the fringes of the church and keep our distance? That's like burying your talent in the ground. We have the privilege of being a part of the church of Jesus Christ. What do you do with that privilege? Are you a good steward of it? Or do you say, yeah, I'm just going to stay out here for a while. You're burying it in the ground. Do we manage well the access we have to the throne of God? Secured for us by the Lord Jesus so that we can come boldly to that throne of grace? Do we manage that well privately in our own closets? Do we manage our do we manage the privilege we have to enter into the throne room of God? Do we manage that well privately? Do we manage that well corporately? Let me just tell you, from where I sit, that we don't manage our access to the throne of God well corporately on Wednesday nights. We just don't. Look around. Look. Look around. Look around. Y'all, what's hard about that? It goes like this. Look around. You know how many people come to pray? And I know there's other people in the nursery and helping the kids understand that. But you know how many people come to pray on Wednesday nights? Sometimes... That many. That's all. We are not being good stewards of our corporate privilege of gathered prayer. We buried it in the ground. We need to come. Manage what God has given you well and do it with an eye to Him. Now look at the reward. Verses 20 to 23. Those who had received the five, the one who received the five came and brought five more. He said, Master, look, I've got five more. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who received two. Lord, look at what I've done. i got two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You're faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Enter into the joy of your master. One of the primary motivations behind these two servants' labor was the anticipation of the master's return and his delight in them. Enter into the joy of your master. This was no grudging, forced, unwilling service they rendered. They knew his heart. They knew the heart of their master. They knew his generosity. They knew his commitment to them, and they served him gladly. Was the work sometimes hard? I'm sure it was. Was it sometimes demanding? I'm sure it was. Did they have to really work their minds and think, now how can I take these five and turn them into ten? How can I take these two and multiply and increase them? This is what I can do. Were there sometimes failures? There probably were. But they got up and worked at it again. And it was hard and it took time and energy. 
But they knew their master. And they knew he was coming back to settle accounts. And they knew his heart toward them. So threading its way all through their labor was this sense of anticipation and delight in serving such a good master. Is that how you and I operate? Do we have an eye to his return? Are we persuaded of his unwavering delight in us and of the joy that awaits us in his presence? Do we get excited about hearing these words? Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Does that get your heart pumping? It doesn't get my heart pumping nearly like it ought to. Oh God, make this heart pump with a desire to hear your well done, good and faithful servant. We've given, we've given way too much credence to the lie of the devil that Jesus is a hard taskmaster. These guys didn't think so. They didn't think he was a hard guy to work for. They loved working for their master. Can you read between lines when they come back and say, see, I've got five more. You see how happy they are? You see the delight with which they bring these other five talents to their master? And how how his words land to them, well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We feel too often like... The psalmist in Psalm 73, when he says, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat, that means prosperous, and they're not in trouble as other men are, nor are they plagued like mankind. Man, the wicked really have it good. I got it hard. The non-Christians have it easy. Why is my life so difficult? Is it really worth it? Dear Christian, take a fresh look at your master. See him for who he is. See Him for the Savior He is. See Him for the generous giver He is. See Him for the forgiving and rescuing Redeemer He is. See Him for the patient, long-suffering teacher He is. See Him for the returning King He is who will set everything right on the last great day and then serve Him gladly with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and be a good steward of all that He has entrusted you because He's coming. He's coming back and he's going to settle accounts and how he longs to say to you and to me, well done, good and faithful servant. But look now for a moment quickly at the third servant who was given one talent. It's such a different picture. Matthew 25, verses 24 and 25. And the one who also had received the one talent said, Master, I knew and you can hear him. You can hear him. I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. There, you got what's yours. And he drops it at his feet. His description of the master is a feeble attempt to place the blame for his own laziness and wickedness at the master's feet. But it doesn't stick because it's not true. And the penalty is devastating. Throw out that worthless slave into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He had no heart for his master, no heart to serve him or to trust him or to love him. And in the end he was cast out with no hope of recovery. He was lost. 
And it may be that some of you here this morning are in that category. You're lost. And if Jesus returned today, you'd try to blame it all on him. You try to blame your lostness on him. And it's not going to stick. It's not going to stick. You're not prepared. You, you've, you've wasted, you've wasted your life. And you're not prepared to meet him. You've ignored him. And if you've acknowledged him at all, it's only been lip service, but your hearts have been far from him. And unless you come to him in repentance and faith, you'll remain unprepared to meet him in that last great day. But that day is not right now. So you have time to repent and believe this very moment. Has Jesus come back yet? No, we're all still sitting here living and breathing. The moment of his return is not right now. So what moment is it right now? Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the time for you to repent and believe. And be prepared to meet your master face to face. And it's critical that you do so. Because there's a great day of judgment coming. And this is our last point. The lesson of the sheep and the goats tells us why we must be ready. And I'm not going to read these words in the interest of time, but he's going to come and Jesus is going to sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. And the sheep will enter into the glory of heaven and the goats will be cast out into everlasting Torment. The reason we must be ready is simple. There is a coming day of judgment. All the nations will be gathered. Not one will be missing. Work that out, will you? Not one will be missing. All the nations will be there. You will be there. And I will be there. Really and for sure, you and I will be there. Adam and Eve will be there. Abram, Isaac, and Jacob will be there. They will. Joseph and his brothers will be there. George Whitfield and John Wesley are going to be there. Elvis Presley will be there. He will. Martin Luther and every pope who's ever lived will be there. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, will be there. Every Supreme Court justice will be there. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton will be there. Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, and Christopher Hitchens will be there. Known, known avowed atheists. My children. My children will be there. My grandchildren, all 11 of them, will be there. Pastor Ted's going to be there. And Pastor Keith's going to be there. Pastor Jonathan's going to be there and Pastor Mark's going to be there. Attendance will not be taken because nobody is going to be missing. Steve Woodman will be there. All of us. And a great and decisive separation will take place like a shepherd. At the end of the day, separates his sheep from his goats and the sheep have been his right and the goats on his left. And then comes the great reward. Come, you are blessed to my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And notice that this is something they inherit. 
It's not something they've earned or deserved. They've inherited it. Inheritance is based on relationship, not on merit. So when Jesus details all the things they did to him, fed him, clothed him, invited him in, visited him, gave him something to drink, etc. He's not talking about the basis on which God gives them entrance into the kingdom. He's talking about the practical outward evidence that they've had a saving relationship with him. And it's out of that relationship that a life of good works grows. And notice that they're surprised about it. When did we see you hungry or naked or, or thirsty and so on? They've not been keeping score. They've not been interested in how much they have done or if they've done more than somebody else. They've simply been living out their quiet stewardship with an eye to their master's return and to his approval. They've been living humbly and diligently and willingly for him, and they are blessed. But see the penalty. It is as devastating as the reward is delightful. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is final and irreversible and eternal and unspeakably horrible. We don't like to think or talk about it. We don't like to think about it as reality for multitudes who've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus details what they have not done for him, they are surprised. They're arrogant and blind. They really think they've done better and deserve better. And you may think the same as you sit here this morning. You're not that bad. You don't follow Jesus, really. You don't trust him alone. You don't live for him. You pretty much live for yourself. You do your own thing. You try to be a good neighbor and all that stuff, but you're not really desperate for Jesus. You're not altogether persuaded that you need him all that badly. You'll take your chances, and then in the end, whether you die or Jesus comes back, you'll be okay. You're just not going to sweat it. Listen to me. Taking your chances will never get you to heaven. It doesn't work. It will never satisfy God. The five foolish virgins tried it their way and got shut out. The servant who had the one talent tried it his way and he got thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And those on Christ's left hand were surprised that their lack of compassion on the poor and needy was enough to consign them to hell. The only way you'll be ready to die or to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment is to be trusting Jesus and Jesus only right now. Right now. Let me tell you how that works. I tell this to kids frequently in chapel. And I'll do it really fast, okay? Here's how it works. Uh, who said it already this morning? God's law. You said it, Pastor Ted, down here in, when you baptized Devin. God's law cannot be ignored. It's got to be kept. It can't just be swept under the rug. It's got to be kept. So guess what Jesus did? He kept it for us. Why did Jesus, boys and girls, listen to me. Let me see your eyes. Why did Jesus never roll his eyes at his mother? Because he knew you would. Why did Jesus never stomp his foot and say no to his mother? Because he knew you would. Why did Jesus never disobey? Because he knew you would. List all the sins in the world. Why did Jesus never do them? Because he knew you would. And he kept it all for you. And he takes all of his law keeping. He takes all of his righteousness. And he says, here. You can have this just as really as if it were yours. Just as really as if you had done all this stuff. Which you haven't. But I've done it for you. So here. You can have it. But that's not all. 
Then he takes all of your disobedience, every eye roll, every stomp foot and sin, every, every lustful look, every wicked thought. He takes all of your disobedience and he says, that's mine. As really as if he had disobeyed it all. For you theological hotshots, that's called the counter-imputations of sin and righteousness. For all the rest of it, for all the rest of us, it's, it's he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And he takes all my sin and he suffers under the wrath of God so that I won't have to. That's what you need. That's the gospel that you need. That's what Jesus has done for sinners just like you and me. So, Jesus still hadn't come yet. Right? We're still sitting here. So you got this moment right now to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Delay doesn't work. Doing it your own way doesn't work. Trusting Jesus does. Trust Him. And Christian, let me say a word to you. Are you ready for Jesus to return? Are you looking for Him? We so easily have an earthly mindset. It's hard, it's hard for us to break free from the things of earth that get such a grip on us or that we grip so tightly ourselves. It's hard, it's hard to let that go, to be gripped by the things of heaven and eternity and the world to come. And while we must focus on what God has given us to do here and now, like the two good servants, we must always do so with an eye to the coming of Jesus and the end of this age and the world that is to come. We exercise our stewardship in eager anticipation of hearing the master's well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. When we grow weary in well-doing, when the going is hard and the way is difficult and the days are long and the trials are intense and the assaults are frequent and the temptations are laser-like and the darkness seems to close in and it seems that our strength is about to fail, in those moments we need a fresh reminder that Jesus is coming and that this world is not my home. Remember that old song? This world is... I'm not going to sing it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. If you've got to put a reminder on your phone every morning that says Jesus is coming, and it might be today, then put it on your phone. If you need to set a card on the dashboard of your car that says Jesus is coming, and it may be today, put it on the dashboard of your car. If you need to get a brother or sister in Christ to remind you frequently that Jesus is coming, and there's more to this life than this present age, do whatever you need to do to be ready Because his eye is upon you. It's upon me to bless and help and strengthen and reward and keep and enable. He is a good, good master. And our eyes must be upon him. Looking for his return and trusting for trusting him for grace to be good stewards of all that he has given us until he comes back. And he's coming. And he's coming. Even so come. Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, forgive us for being so short-sighted that all we see 
is the world around us. Remind us, expand our vision, turn our eyes up to remember that Jesus is coming and this age is going to come to an end. Make us good stewards until he returns. And Lord, there's some here whose eyes just plain need to be opened. Will you open them? Will you draw them to yourself? Will you give them repentance and faith? And may they look up with new first-time faith to lay hold of Jesus Christ so that in that last great day they'll not be cast out, but they'll be welcomed in. Do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.